If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn in it to Matthew chapter 4. This isn't part of our First Peter series, which we're going to pick up again next Sunday. But it does involve Peter. This is the account of Jesus choosing Peter and some other men to be his disciples, whom he later called apostles. And this passage has something to say to us as we are starting to face a new year together. And I trust that that will become obvious as we talk about the passage. So let's read Matthew 4, 12 to 25, and then ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of sh and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. <clears throat> From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. What an event that was, Lord. That was the beginning of you building your church, which we are now part of. You started something then that's still going on and will go on until the close of this world. You'll call us into it. You give us a part to play in this great, this mission of fishers, being fishers of men. And so, Lord, would you open up our eyes today to see the promise of your calling? Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you envision us and give us faith for the year ahead and what you would do in it? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, Today's the last year of 2017, the last day of 2017, and tomorrow starts a new year. And the start of a new year is a time when many of us get in a reflective mood, and we think about how our life went in the last year and what we'd like to do 
next year. So we make resolutions about what we're going to do differently or what we're going to start doing. So I'm going to start making better use of my time. Or I'm going to eat better and I'm going to exercise. I'm going to get out of debt. I'm going to try and finally finish that project that I never get to. Or I'm going to learn Spanish. Uh, We resolve things like that because one thing that everybody has in common without exception is that we all want to be happy. We all want to know that our lives are going in a good direction. We want to do things that matter. We want to experience life to the full. And so if it takes losing 20 pounds to do that, (laughs) or finishing college, or learning a language, language, we're, we're willing to make the commitment. We're willing to make the sacrifice of time and money and energy because we want to live a life well lived. So it begs the question, what exactly is a life that's well lived? What is really worth your resolve, your commitment, your, your deepest commitment? What's worth giving your life to? I think we have an answer to that in our passage this morning. It's what Jesus said to Peter and to Andrew and James and John. He said to them, follow me. Follow me. So follow Jesus. That is a life well lived. That's worth your deepest commitment. That's worthy of your resolve. Peter and the other guys thought so. When Jesus said, follow me, what do we, what do we read? Immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. They left their jobs as fishermen. They left their only source of income. James and John even left their father in the boat. They walked away from the family business. To do what? To follow a man who walked up to them one day and said, come with me. Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody in their right mind just leave it all and follow a guy? Unless they thought to themselves, now this is worth doing. Now, this is better than all the alternatives. This is worth giving my life to. They must have thought that or they wouldn't have done it. Which is why I think I can say the most worthy thing we can resolve in 2018 is to follow Jesus. Because whatever it was the disciples saw when Jesus walked up to their boat is what he still is. As he calls to us, follow me. What I hope to show you from the passage is that you'll be making the right choice if you resolve to do that, God helping you. Whatever else you resolve, and there's other good things, it's okay to lose weight, whatever. But I hope that above it all is the resolve to follow Jesus because that is really worth giving your life to. So first we're going to look at what it means to follow him, look at the command. Then we're going to consider two reasons why it's worth it from the text. And then I'm going to close with uh, walking through some of the things that we're planning to do together as a church in 2018, how we want to follow Jesus specifically together. So that's where we're going. Let's start with Jesus' command, follow me. So as we read, he walks up to the four fishermen. He says, follow me. It's not rocket science to understand what Jesus was asking them to do. 
He wanted them to put down their nets, get out of their boats, and go wherever he would take them and do whatever he wanted them to do. And not temporarily, not just for the next couple of hours. He meant permanently. Follow, means, follow me means I'm going to direct your life now. And for those four guys, that meant a change in vocation. No longer are they going to be fishermen. Jesus says, I have a new job for you. I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's what you're going to do now. Friends, Jesus makes that same call to you and to me this morning. The most common description of a believer in Jesus in the Bible is the word disciple. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is an apprentice who learns the ways of the master. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. It, it means to yield control of your life to him, to be directed by him, to let him decide where you will go and what you will do. That's his call in our lives. And that is very different from just following a religion or following a set of teachings. It's possible, and I would say that it's common, to reduce Christianity to nothing more than some principles to follow. Some things to do, some things to not do. So do not steal, check, I've got that. Uh, do not covet Anything that belongs to your neighbor, well, I'm working on that. <laughs> Go to church, read your Bible, do good things for people. We can think that's Christianity. But there are at least two things wrong with that. One is that thinking means you're still in charge. Because what ends up happening is that you decide which principles you want to follow and which ones you will skip, which ones you'll ignore. We skip over the harder principles like, you shall be my witnesses in favor of ones we feel more comfortable with, like, on the Sabbath, you shall do no work. <clears throat> Rest and recreation, bring it on. <laughs> God's will for me, I can handle that. Risk my reputation by talking to, to a coworker about Jesus, maybe, maybe later. See, we're still in charge if Christianity is just principles to follow. But that's not following. Here's the other thing wrong with thinking Christianity is just following teachings rather than following a person. It's impersonal. It's not a relationship. You can't have a relationship with rules. You can only have a relationship with a person. And so it isn't long before you get tired of it because it's like taking an online college course. It's just information that you're supposed to know and that you feel like you're constantly being graded on. It all becomes duty and obligation. No relationship with a person. And brothers and sisters, that is not what Christianity is. Yes, the Lord does guide us according to His written word. That's non-negotiable. There's teaching that we need to understand and obey, definitely. And it's written down in a book. But the author of that book lives. 
Jesus, crucified, buried, raised, ascended to heaven on the throne of the universe, lives. And he is with us personally. When Jesus commissioned the church to go and make disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, he did not say, Behold, my book is with you always to the end of the age. No, he said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you, with, with you by my Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, he said in John chapter 14. I will come to you by my Spirit, and my Spirit will dwell within you and empower you. Friends, to follow Jesus means we follow a living person. And that living person has places for us to go and things for us to do. And it's specific to you. He gives different gifts to different people. 1 Corinthians 12. He formed different personalities. He puts us in different circumstances. He has a will for us, for each of us, a path that He wants each of us to take, and it isn't identical to everybody else's. Some parts are the same, the trajectory, the goal, the principles, but your individual path in life is specific that the Lord wants you to walk down. Follow me, Jesus says. Now, why should we do it? We need motivation. And God is gracious to give us motivation. <laughs> you know, he's got all the authority that there is in the universe, and he could just tell us to do things and not explain it. That would be fine. He's, that's within his rights. But he's gracious, and he gives us reasons because he knows we're but dust and we need help <laughs> and that it's hard for us to do it. And so he's given us reasons, and I see two of them in the text that we're going to look at this moment. Um, these guys who followed Jesus, they needed motivations. They were just like us. They, they needed a job. They needed income. They needed a roof over their heads. It wasn't comfortable to get up and walk and follow this guy into the unknown. And yet, they did it, so we want to see why. What, what enabled them to do that so we can do the same? So let's look at the two motivations. The first one is the greatness of Jesus. That's the first motivation to follow him. The greatness of Jesus. He is worth following because he is just totally amazing. We read in verses 12 to 17 that Jesus fulfilled a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus fulfilled that. He is the great light that dawned on the world on people who dwell in darkness. And his prophecy was fulfilled both literally and spiritually. Literally, Jesus' arrival into the world was announced by a great light that people dwelling in darkness saw. Matthew is the only gospel writer who records the mysterious star of Bethlehem. 
that led the Magi to the house where Jesus was after he was born. Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There was literally a great light in the sky that those in darkness saw. I'm reading a book right now. It makes a very convincing case that what they saw was a comet. Comets were sometimes called stars, and they have the ability to actually stand over a point because they have a tail and actually point to something, which is what it had to do in order for them to see which house Jesus was in. It's a real fascinating read. Is it true? I don't know for sure, but it sure makes good sense that maybe what they saw that led them all their way was a comet. So already this says something about Jesus that's amazing. I mean, who else gets his own comet to announce his birth, right? That didn't happen when I was born. (laughs) Who else has the cooperation of the cosmos to draw attention to his arrival? Only someone born the king of the Jews who deserves our worship because he's God. The great light drew attention to him. And the light itself was symbolic of the spiritual reality of who Jesus is. He's the one who brings the light of life into the world. The text says Jesus came to those who dwell in the shadow of death, not just in the darkness of night, but the shadow of death. That means Jesus is the light of life. He brings hope to those who face the reality of death, which is all of us. He brings eternal life. He brings an answer to death. And we know how he does it from the rest of the gospel. He came to take the blame and the punishment for the sins of all who trust him as Savior. He came to bring forgiveness for the wrongs we've done. He came to make us right with God by removing the offense of our sin that stood between us. He satisfied God's law that there needs to be punishment for sin. He came to die on the cross that we might live, that we might have the light of life, that we might have the kingdom of heaven. That's what he said in verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, which is the arena of God in which he brings joy and life and hope and and permanence. That arena is in Jesus Christ. Heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come in the person of Jesus. That's why he's worth following. Peter recognized it. He said in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Nobody else has that. Jesus is the one you can hitch your wagon to. He is somebody truly great. In our day, people get followers by seeming to be great in some way. It's easy to do now with Twitter, Facebook, blogs, right? You can get followers 
right? If you say enough interesting things, if you sound like you know what you're talking about, if you reach some kind of celebrity status, you can get lots and lots of followers. You can get people to retweet your, retweet your tweets and link to your articles and use your name in conversation. You can get all that in this life. People get followers because people think they're pretty great. Well, friends, nobody has anything on Jesus. Nobody is in his class. Because nobody else is the almighty creator who humbled himself to be born as a man and then to be mocked and spit on and tortured and crucified for us (laughs) to save us in our wretchedness and to give us life, and to go as far as adopting us as his sons and daughters. Nobody else is in his category. Nobody deserves to have their name mentioned more often than Jesus. And nobody's more qualified or trustworthy to guide and direct our lives. Than, than the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you would have a Christianity that's more than just religious information and rules to follow, you will get it as you know Jesus more personally as your Savior. And that begins with knowing and looking for Him in the Scriptures. So Savannah has created a bunch of Bible reading plans out there, printed them for us, sent you a link in an email. Reading the Bible, whether it's one of those plans or some plan, is essential to knowing Him. (laughs) That's where we have the clearest explanation of the person of Christ. (laughs) And so when we read it, let's read it devotionally. Let's look for, who are you, Lord? And what would you have me do? And what have you done for me? So that it's personal. You did it for me. You're my God. Read it that way. Not just because you have to do it, but because he's there. He's written you a letter. He wants you to know him. It starts with that. So the first motivation for following Jesus is because of the greatness of who he is. The second motivation is this. It's the greatness of his mission. It's the greatness of his mission. In other words, where Jesus intends to lead you is a cause totally worth giving your life to. It's totally worth it. This comes from verses 23 and following. After Peter and Andrew, James and John left their careers and joined up with Jesus, here's what they became part of. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. So here's the mission. It's to rescue dying souls through the gospel and spread the fame of Jesus by transformed lives. The mission is rescue dying souls through the gospel and spread the fame of Jesus 
through transformed lives. The, the first thing we read is that Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That was number one. He also healed people. He also did miracles. But even healed people eventually die. What matters most is what happens to you after you die. Because that is where you will be for eternity. And it will be either eternal punishment for your unforgiven sins or it will be eternal joy in the kingdom of heaven and your destination is entirely decided by whether or not you have heard and have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for your sins. The mission that Jesus calls each of us to is to rescue dying souls. It's to be guides to those who dwell in the shadow of death and to lead them to eternal life. Jesus wants you and I to be a part of that. He wants you to know the joy that it is when one sheep, one lost sheep, is brought into the fold. He wants you to know what that feels like. He wants you to rejoice like he rejoices over one sinner who repents. He wants you to participate in the greatest rescue mission of all time. The rescue of Jesus' bride, the church that he came to purchase with his own blood. That comes from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. If we're going to follow anybody, especially if it's a hard road which Jesus promises that it will be, we need to know that it's worth it. It needs to be a great cause. <clears throat> I knew a World War II veteran. He fought in some terrible battles in the Pacific Islands. He was a Marine, so he was one of the first ones to go in, to land on the beach of enemy territory. And he was telling us about how their landing craft, you know, the door drops down and they get out and the guy next to him steps on a landmine and it blows him away. And he survives. He saw a lot of death. He saw a lot of horror, horrific things. We went and visited him one time on Veterans Day just to thank him for what he did. And he said, it was a pleasure. Not at the time. But when I see you, and I see what it has caused, and that you live in freedom, and I see your kids growing up in a free land, it was worth it. It was a pleasure, because it was a great cause. To follow Jesus on his mission is a greater cause, because this is about eternity, eternally saving souls. Delivering people from darkness, from despair, from the devil, from what sin does. <clears throat> That's a greater mission. To help people out of bondage, to have hope. <clears throat> it's something that politicians can't give. It's something that an army can't do for you. No celebrity can give you this. But Jesus can do it. We have the opportunity to hold out the word of life to people. Your part in it will be different from others in the specifics. Not everybody's called to leave their day job 
and become an apostle. We each have our gifts from God. We each have our life opportunities. Some people are going to be a part of this mission as businessmen, businesswomen. People like Lydia in Acts 16. She was a seller of purple goods. That means she was an international businesswoman selling the good stuff to a rich clientele. And one day she heard Paul preaching and she believed and she immediately invited him into her home. Right away, she's like, I want to be a part of this. I want to support you, Paul. That's how she was involved. You might do it by discipling a young believer in a coffee shop. You might meet with them, and then you show them what you know about the Scriptures. That's what Aquila and Priscilla did with Apollos in Acts 18. He comes into town, and he's this mighty speaker, and he knows a little bit about Jesus, and he's great at preaching that, but he doesn't know a whole lot. And so they take him aside, and it says they explain to him the way of God more accurately. <laughs> that might be what you're doing sometime as part of this mission. Some are going to be faithful mothers, like the one Paul mentioned in Romans 16, 13. He said, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. <laughs> I just think it's so cool that in God's eyes, being a faithful woman who cares for your kids and the saints is worth eternal remembrance. <laughs> you put that in there, you faithful mothers. <laughs> That's part of the mission. We're each called to a different part, but our mission is the same. Rescue people from sin and death and the devil and to spread the fame of Jesus as we see lives transformed. I think one of the reasons we get bored or apathetic about being a Christian is because we set our sights too low. We content ourselves with a little experience of Christ. We dabble a little bit in the mission, but we don't want to do anything too risky. We don't want to get too far outside of our comfort zone. We want to stay in our boats, so to speak, not shake things up too much, not venture out into the unknown where real faith is required, where we really don't know where Jesus is going to lead us. We talk ourselves out of things. You know, I can't start a conversation with Jesus about this person or I can't start talking to this person about Jesus because oh, I don't really know what I'm saying. And I don't want to risk what's going to happen if they reject it. Or you know what? We're just too small of a church to really make any difference in the world. So let's just set our sights lower. Let's just fellowship. Let's just do good at caring for one another. But let's not expect to have any kind of an impact on Aurora or Denver or the world. We talk ourselves out of things. We, we stay with our nets, with what's comfortable. We don't focus on following Jesus and his mission. We need a bigger view of what God has in store for us as we exercise faith and follow the Lord. <clears throat> I guarantee you the disciples were not bored after they dropped their nets and followed Christ. They had a front row seat to amazing acts of God. The text says Jesus healed paralytics and those who were pressed by demons. 
Amazing stuff. There was real-time, right-now deliverance for people. They saw him walk on water. They saw him multiply loaves and fishes. They also saw him hang on a cross. But then they saw him raised again. And then they watched him as he went up into the clouds and ascended to the right hand of God. They got to see all that because they left their nets. There are a lot of things they wouldn't have seen if they'd have stayed in their boats. Some of them they probably wish they hadn't seen, like the crucifixion. But the glory of the risen Christ and his power at work more than compensated for the, for the hard stuff. I found that to be the case as somebody who left my nets, so to speak, as a scientist. <clears throat> Sometimes I miss the financial security that we had and that job that I had and the insurance. <laughs> Some things about it have been hard for my family. It wasn't easy for them to follow. It's not that fun to sit across a counseling table from somebody whose life is nearly destroyed by their sin or by somebody else's sin. And you don't know what to say. But there are moments when you see God break in. I think about this young lady, barely out of her teens, pregnant by her non-Christian boyfriend who was in our church back in Minnesota. Her parents kicked her out. So we brought her into our house so that she could stay there until the baby was born and get her life kind of together. So she stayed with us for 10 months, and I was meeting with the boyfriend who was not a believer just to try and persuade him about Jesus and hopefully have him come to faith. Well, then she moved out, and then we moved here. And I was kind of wondering, what, what's ever going to happen with that? How's that going to turn out? <laughs> Today, that guy is not only a believer, but he's a godly, zealous young leader in the church. And he and that young lady are married, and they have four beautiful kids, and they are a joy to everybody around them. You get to see stuff like that if you follow Jesus. And that makes it worth it. But we don't get to experience those things if we don't follow, if we don't actively yield our lives to the Lord and say day by day, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? And then step out in faith to do it. You won't regret leaving your nets for his sake, whatever that looks like for you. <clears throat> you might become like Peter. There was a time where he denied that he even knew Jesus. And then there was a time where he was preaching boldly, this Christ whom you crucified. <laughs> but the first step is to get out of the boat and follow Christ. That leads to the last point which is how we hope to do this together at Sovereign Grace Church in 2018. I want to close by painting a picture of what's coming in 2018 as far as our church plans go. 
Um, I don't think these will be new to you, but we've mentioned them in other meetings, but I want to highlight them this morning because this is how we feel like Jesus is saying, follow me. This is how he's saying to the church, this is what I want you to be about. By his grace, we'll follow him. So let me explain how we'll follow Jesus in 2018, Lord willing. Um, First, let me share some perspective about where I think we are in our church's history. Um, at least church's history since I've been here. When we moved here in 2008 and I became your pastor, I would say that the next three years or so were a period of transition. Pastoral turnover is always hard, even if it's good. And those first few years were just about getting used to the changes. We moved a couple of times, among other things. Then we went through a season that I would call stabilization. About 2011 or so, our family of churches went through a season of division. Charges were made against the character of some of our denominational leaders. There was a lawsuit. People left churches. Churches left our denomination. And so I think that produced a lot of good things. But it was a time when a lot of our energy, especially as a denomination, was focused on stability just kind of settling, where, where are we all going to land? That was our focus for a while, gaining stability. And now I think we've entered a new stage, both as a denomination and as a local church. And I think we can call that stage mobilization. Mobilization. In other words, our sights are now more than ever on advancing the kingdom of God. We're less concerned about stability And we're thinking more about growth. And here's what that means for our church. We've been a church that meets in Aurora. But we think the Lord wants us to see ourselves as a church that is here to reach Aurora. In other words, to think of ourselves as a church plant, not as an established church. To ask ourselves, if we were planning a church in this city in 2018, what would we do? What would be essential and what would be negotiable? If we were starting from scratch, if we wanted to bring the gospel to our neighbors, our co-workers, the people that we live around, what would we do? Those are questions we've been asking ourselves. And it's led to some new initiatives and some experimentation. So first of all, Dan and Todd and I are taking a course from Tim Keller's church called Ministry Design. It's all online. We go at our own pace, but here's what it's for. It's helping us to form what Keller calls a theological vision. And now, a theological vision is not a vision statement for the church. Rather, it's something that helps us figure out what we're going to do with what we believe at our particular time and place. Maybe the best way to explain it is this. We believe that people must trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. That's belief. But what specifically should we be doing, given our context in Aurora, to see that come about? Should we go and preach on street corners? Should we have evangelistic Bible studies? Should we blanket the city with flyers to invite them to come to our events? What actually should we do with our time. Theological vision helps us figure that out. 
We study our city. We look at who God has made us to be, our particular gifts and circumstances and whatnot, the gifts He's given us, and we say, okay, let's do this now. <laughs> Rather than just grabbing things, well, I heard somebody else tried this, so let's do that. I hear about this other thing going on there, so let's go do that. No, think about it more proactively. No, who are we, where do we live, and how has God gifted us to go and bring the gospel to this scenario, to the city? And then we're going to do that. So pray for us as we go through this process as pastors and pastoral interns, future pastoral interns. It's going to take several months, but we think it's worth the effort. That's one way that God is leading us in 2018. Here are some other ones you know about. We've been experimenting with our meetings outside of Sunday. We started the Young Adults Group last year. And it's going to continue this year. And it replaced care groups for them, which made us uncomfortable. Because care groups has always been the bread and butter of how we do life together. And we are concerned that we might lose something very valuable by trying this new experiment. But we saw an opportunity to really focus for a time on the younger generation because only, according to numbers I've seen, only 6% of the younger generation is Christian in America. We are losing the next generation. But we don't think we have to. And that's not the case here. Because God has blessed the experiment. Our younger people are developing deeper relationships that are helping them persevere in the faith and challenge one another in the truths of the scriptures, to be there for each other, to help them to, to go and grow and not only just persevere, but to be an in, in influence where they are. We think we see that happening. A new generation of leaders is being raised up. We think God is on the move in our younger generation. <clears throat> We've seen some things from the young adult group that have encouraged us to start other things. So the idea of the all-church gathering came out of that. That's going to start January 21st, by the way. We learned what the church has always known, probably for, for centuries, that sharing a meal together is a really good way to build relationships, it, to set the table, so to speak, for deeper fellowship. Jesus practiced it regularly. The early church practiced it as part of the rhythm of their life. Even heaven is pictured as a banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So once a month, we're going to get the church together. And half that time is going to be spent eating and interacting. No specific agenda. But then the second half, we're going to split up men and women. And we're going to be intentional about building each other up in the faith. Older to the younger, younger and older together. We're going to be intentional about that. We're going to give questions to talk about so that you can get to know God's story in each one of your lives. We have questions like, what's the biggest challenge God has gotten you through in life? It would be very good if some of our younger people could hear what God has done in your older saints. And the young older saints can be very helped by seeing the zeal and inquisitiveness and the energy of the young generation and their needs we're going to ask questions like, what's the clearest answer to prayer you've ever received? Things that help us to get to know God's work. We're going to be intentionally cross-generational about that because the church is not just one demographic. 
young or old. It's all of us. It's what he has assembled. That's the very first topic we're going to talk about in our discipleship community, which is one of the new things that we're trying here. I mentioned that already. 19 people are signed up. That's also not exactly a care group. It's more of a targeted theological and character training for those who have the hunger and the opportunity to grow and potentially be leaders. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to have assignments. The goal is to follow Jesus and His Word and to stir one another up, to take risks, and to engage non-believers with the gospel. That's the goal. Care groups won't be left untouched. We're used to always talking about the sermon, and that's stood by us for years, and that's perfectly fine. But we think for a season, we're going to do some material together. We're all going to go through life, the, the gospel-centered life which was material we did like seven years ago. It's very user-friendly. You don't have any homework. You do it all right there in care group. But it's like, how does the gospel actually make a difference in my life? <clears throat> what, how am I different for having believed this? <laughs> and what difference does it make in the way I live? That's what we'll all go through together in care groups. <clears throat> it's, nine, it's nine weeks. And then the last thing I want to mention is our next sermon series after First Peter. I've had a growing conviction that there's a subject we haven't spent enough time on, which is pursuing the Holy Spirit and His power for life and ministry. We read this morning what it looked like to follow Jesus, and consistently in His ministry and in all of that the apostles saw, it involved amazing things like healings, demons being cast out, Signs and wonders. People got transformed. And it all has to do with the Holy Spirit working powerfully among those who are trying to spread the fame of Jesus. <clears throat> you shall be my witnesses. That comes after the, this, this promise. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. You shall receive power from the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to bring transformation. That's what's going to turn Peter into this scared guy, into this bold proclaimer. We want to spend more time on that. We're going to have five, five messages and hopefully more on pursuing the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. And that'll start after First Peter. And part of that is... Mark Prater coming to give a seminar on prophecy. And that's going to be sometime, that's going to be June, one to, one to three. We're doing that with Grace Community Church. So all that to say, I believe the Lord wants us to experience more of what the four men experienced when they left their nets and followed Christ. More demonstrations of God's transforming power. So let me just close with an invitation to you in 2018. <clears throat> let's follow Jesus together. Join us in planting a church in Aurora, Denver. <laughs> Our church <laughs> in this city. Lean in and take advantage of the opportunities that you have to grow and spread the fame of Jesus. And I believe he will. We will see him do great things. Whatever else you resolve, resolve to follow Jesus together, God helping us.
that is worth giving your life to. Let's pray. If you took normal people, Lord, just their flaws are, are all recorded for us. And we thank you for the encouragement that that is because you used them to turn the world upside down. You started with 12. That's all you needed, 12. You've got more than 12. So, Lord, would you envision us for what you could do and would you buy... Above all things, empower us by your spirit that you have given to us. Lord, we haven't tapped into all that you want to do. Uh, Help us to to follow you, Lord, in faith. You are great. You're loving. You're powerful. You mean to do us good. Everything you call us to do is the very best thing possible. So, Lord, help us to see that. Build your church here, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.